1: meeting is being recorded
2: hello and welcome to another episode of my property world i'm will mallard delighted to be joined by sam Lowney. great to have you on sam
1: hi will great to uh, be here with you thank you for the invite
2: so um uh, sam uh, is going to be doing a bit of a, a profile and we'll be uh walking back into his property and property finance history a fascinating story, a lot to look forward to in this this episode. Um, I I came across Sam um, probably a couple of years ago, but um, I saw him give a presentation uh, on raising capital um, at, at Central London Property Network uh, a few weeks ago. And it was one of the, not just best presentations on that topic, it was one of the best presentations I've seen. And I I approached Sam and asked him to come on. Um, now Sam's at Mary Oaks Property Finance. Um, you can get hold of him uh, on LinkedIn. Is the best way, is it, Sam?
1: Absolutely. We, you know, we've got a website and everything, but the best way to get in touch with me, get connect with me directly, um, and and uh, follow a lot of the thought pieces that I put out and ideas and thoughts that I have across property finance, investment, development. LinkedIn is the best platform.
2: Okay, so uh, it's Sam S A A M. Lowney, That's L-O-W-N-I, uh, check him out on LinkedIn. Now, uh, Sam, you might just give a, a very quick flavor of what the, the current business is, uh, is, is doing at the moment, and we'll, we'll go back into uh, the backstory, which is um, one, of the, one of the more interesting property journeys that I've come across.
1: Thank you. Um, so, well, yeah, I, I started out in property 20 years ago. It's actually over 20 years i've been saying 20 years for the last two years so i started in 2001 um, and i started out as an estate agent and i actually always wanted to be in property Um, my father was in property in the 80s Um, he was buying properties from my best friend's dad um, and these were two up two downs in coal mining pit villages up in durham county We, we lived in durham city at the time and these were houses that you could buy for literally two three four thousand pounds Um, And they would refurbish them and then flip them for five, six, seven thousand pounds. The average house price in the UK across that time was around eighty thousand pounds. And when I wanted to move to London to go to university, it was my old man who said that nobody wants a business graduate with no work experience to get a job. Um, And I really wanted to be an estate agent. My best friend's dad was a big estate agent up in the northeast. And I, and I was never really academically um, strong at school, I was pretty average. And I felt that being an estate agent, you'd be in the kind of desk officer environment, which sounded like you'd make a lot of money wearing a suit, etc. But you didn't have to be stuck behind a desk or behind a computer or anything like that. For long periods of time, you'd get out of the office, you'd go out in nice cars and look at houses, uh, which was, you know, to me, it sounded pretty uh, glamorous. And and yeah, so I ended up working for free um, in in the Northeast of London in a place called Walthamstow. Um, nobody would give me a job part-time whilst I was studying full-time. Um, so the best that I could do was get a free internship almost. I wrote on the bottom of the CV, I'll PS, I'll work for free after getting rejected and getting no calls back, uh, callbacks. And eventually um, worked for three months. They ended up giving me a part-time position. It was on a minimum wage. I think it was like something like £3.80 an hour. Um, and I and that was the start of it, really. So I started making a little bit of money. I was really I was enjoying it so much. I was stapling property lists together. So this was before even computers were on desk, we had applicant cards um, and I would be getting teas, coffees, lunches. Um, I would just be helping around the office, and then slowly but surely, when there were when somebody was sick, I'd have an actual desk to sit at. Somebody would walk in, I would register their details. So you know, what's the maximum price you can afford up to? What's the minimum number of bedrooms? Take all their details, have a look in the in, in the cabinet of of all the different properties we had, and see which which viewings I could arrange. And I I got it pretty quickly. I don't think it's rocket science, but I absolutely enjoyed the conversation with people, first time buyers, families. What you know why are you looking to move what's more important to you is it space or is it location um do you need to be close to 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 the station all of these different things were were fascinating to me and seeing different people react in different ways and then starting to almost second guess what they were going to say and then and then trying to expand their horizons it was just all absolutely brilliant eventually i would take off conduct viewings take offers negotiate offers Uh,
2: what, what type of business was it in was it independent estate agent
1: it was a it wasn't entirely national, but it was like uh, it's heart estate agents. So part of the TMX group um, owned by father, son, Mr. And Mr. Smith, they would go out and buy chains of estate agencies. Felicity J. Lord was in there. I think can't remember. There was a bunch of other ones that they owned. So they had quite a big it was a corporate company, 100 percent corporate, um, and they were just purely doing sales. We had a mortgage broker in house. Um, and it was a funny, it was actually a, a funny team, wonderful team, kind of still in touch uh, in a roundabout way with with a few of those people as well. R- rough size
2: of the office in terms of number of people?
1: Um, we were six, I think, in total. Uh, so we got one, two, three, four,
2: five, six, six, seven. And that's a, a great number in terms of uh, being in the mix and uh, being able to see everything that's going on. Um, yeah. Yeah.
1: You had like branch manager you had assistant branch manager you had the mortgage broker and then and then the rest of us were all just negotiators um and that was and then you had one office at, uh, admin as well so yeah it was about six seven people it was it was actually the biggest office in walthamstow so i i don't know if everyone's been down host street at the top of the market but there's loads of estate agents there even back in 2001 probably even more now um but this office—the reason I got loads of offers. Whenever I, when I, when I put, I wrote in pencil on the bottom of my CV, "I'll work for free." I got my phone started ringing off the hook, so I started going to these interviews and sitting with people, and everyone said, "Yeah, when can you start?" So I literally chose this particular estate agency because it had the biggest office, it looked the most glamorous, um, it was a it was like a corner office on this on this street, uh, top of church, uh, bottom of church street, and uh, yeah, I had a great time there. It was I had a good mentor in terms of the branch manager. Um, he was super passionate about property and estate agency, and he would tell me things like Sam was selling dreams here, uh, you know. And I'd go into some really grotty one-bedroom flats that were like conversions that were really badly laid out, and he was like, "These are they'd that, be
2: quite bad dreams.
1: They were like nightmares." But <laughs> no, the but the reality was, and he was absolutely right in 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 from a certain perspective. And this is what I used to tell people. In the end, was this particular property that you're going to buy is going to set you up for your future. You know, you're, you're going to buy it at, let's say one bedroom flats going for like 80 to hundred grand. Those same one bedroom flats now are worth three, 400,000 pounds. So if somebody had made that investment and sat on that property financially, they would be absolutely comfortable now. Um, they wouldn't need to necessarily worry, um, of, about financial, um, you know, they'd be financially free to a certain extent. So and they could go and then refinance, and then maybe set up businesses, go on holidays of their dreams, or have a pension fund. All of those sorts of things became a reality. So, um, and and you know, I bought bought a property there, flipped it, made some money out of it. So it was a, it was a great market to be in. Walthamstow is an area. Um, famous for the longest street market in Europe, famous for E17, the boy band. Um, but also it was one of the most well-connected places in London in terms of having a couple of overground stations. I had two tube stations, had one at a big bus station. Um, it was it and a couple of parks. It was a great place to be and a great place to 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 learn the trade. Um and and it led me on to many more wonderful things. It was the one place that I also really solidified the fact that i wanted to get into the investment side of things though it was great to be an estate agent and work with end users work with um and and buyers if you like um families first time buyers but i saw the developers coming in I, I i noticed the developer buyer and i really liked the cut of their jib I, I just enjoyed seeing how they looked at property i enjoy i i saw what they were buying stuff for and what they were selling it for you know six months later and and I was very, very impressed by that. And, and my career from that point on, although the day job was an estate agent, and I ended up working full time and studying part time, I, I I really wanted to do more on the investment side of things, buy more properties. And, and that's what happened, you know, uh, the family we create a fund, start investing in more properties across North and East London.
2: Right. And and that was uh that was like the little kid's monopoly board dream
1: 100 percent And it literally was that. I used to play um with a friend's dad, Monopoly. Um, as I said, he was a big property mogul in the northeast, and he always used to win. Um, and you know, it's a game of luck to a certain extent. You roll a dice, and you know, if you land on Mayfair three times in a row, no matter how rich you are across the game, you're probably gonna end up bankrupt if they've got some hotels on it. But they that I used to love playing that game and 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 all of that fiction started to become into reality and actually I used to play a lot of computer games simulation games so whether it be Sim city whether it be like Caesar 3 building Empires and stuff and I really liked that whole idea of um of building things. And, and building businesses and driving revenue and, you know, growing the team and this. And when I was part of Heart State Agency, it was a corporate entity and they had many branches and they continued to talk about growth and and working up the, the, the ladder and, and this sort of thing. Um, and I was looking forward to all of that. It was literally whilst I was never that interested in school um, in terms I never was completely like rebel or anything like that, but I just didn't find a lot of the stuff that was very, very interesting. Um, I was kind of good at maths, kind of good at the languages, um, but I, I ended up finding something that I really, really practically was good at, and that I could gamify. You know, you know, you, you're in a computer game, and your bank balance is your score, and you're going around, you know, doing deals and and building that bank balance. And I ended up buying a property, flipping it in six months. The initial ten thousand pounds investment from a 90% LTV mortgage, which was all self set et cetera, uh, and, and relatively easy compared to today, um, you know, doubled my equity and, and, and rolled on to do many, many more deals after that, um, buying and selling a bunch and then hel- holding on to a few.
2: And, and tell me, how did it feel when you uh, exited that first flip?
1: like I was going to be a millionaire by the time I was 20 or something like, you know, I thought this was too easy. I thought this was like, this is going to go on forever. And the days of boom and bust rover, famously Gordon Brown said once upon a time. Um, and I literally thought, yeah, this is like, you know, I'm going to be filthy filthy rich. I'm going to be worth hundreds of millions of pounds. And this is the easiest thing, you know, ever, but obviously it, that didn't materialize in exactly that way. Um, But I was, yeah, I was super, super pumped. Um, And, you know, from uni, like at that time, actually, I remember the guys that I would go to uni with and stuff, these were Greeks and Spanish guys. And, you know, like, they were like, Jesus Christ, this guy's making quite good money. And we're all like living on student loan money and this, that, and the other. And he's doing all right, actually. And I was kind of the richest guy in uni or at least amongst my peers. And then, um, and that was great for that period. But that really, really flipped on its head in 2008 when the rug got pulled. And suddenly my income, which I was mostly from transactions in the marketplace, that's what happens when you're a middleman, you're a broker, you rely on activity in the market. When all of that got pulled, suddenly, and then it was the worst crash in 1929, it was World War III was around the corner, it's going to get worse before it gets better. No one knows when we're going to come out of this. Um, It's... All of these, this doom and gloom. Suddenly, I was the guy that actually wasted the last ten years of my life, or so, or the last eight years of it, whatever it was. And um, and and the joke was on me because whilst everybody else was spending their student loan money on trips to um, Australia and you know Hong Kong and and Japan and India and Thailand and Brazil to the Amazon and having all these wonderful life experiences in their early twenties. I was painting and decorating. I was a uni. I was, you know, doing viewings checking on a Saturday,
2: checking out deals.
1: Yeah. You know, doing viewings on a Saturday and stuff. So like all of that hard work, you know, we were going to have another blitz here apparently, and it was going to be, you know, the end of the world and, and all these properties are going to go to zero and it's the end of the, it's the end of the property boom. It's never going to be the same again. And, and the joke was then on me and that made me quite upset and depressed. So as high as I was, at that first deal. And for many years thereafter, and I was kind of riding a massive wave, which I didn't realize I was on um, it all came crashing down in 2008. Fortunately, nothing bad happened. Uh, In fact, overall, again, I had some wise people around me, interest rates collapsed in 2008, rents went through the roof. So we had this, and we were on lifetime tracker mortgages. So we had this huge profit margin at the end of every month. And the decision was that we were going to use that profit to pay down the loans as quickly as possible. Therefore, we wouldn't be, um, you know, victim of any of the bank's movements or having any loans recalled or anything like that. Um, And that's what we did. And that was a great move because by 2015, everything was paid off. Um, And also between 2010 and 2015, we actually had another property boom, especially around London, the Southeast, where we had the Olympics, huge amount of investment. Um, and and this affordable housing crisis was just getting worse and worse and worse. So some of those properties that we'd actually bought for, let's say, 100000 had gone up five, six times, um, which I didn't foresee. So again, although, let's say, 2002, everything's great, 2008, everything couldn't be worse, and then by 2015, you know, back on top of the world again.
2: Yeah, and, and you're the same guy the whole way through.
1: Well picked up a few scars along the way um but certainly still smiling uh <laughs> i i mean absolutely yeah i like I, I, my my passion for property um and sending everybody home with a smile whether it be tenants whether it be buyers whether it be you know and 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 making that deal work for everybody um that i think only became stronger in me mm-hmm.
2: so um you uh, in that period post 2008
0: uh, it was consolidation. So I ended up traveling. Um,
1: I thought, you know what? Here's uh, everybody else has done the traveling thing. Uh, I'm I'm still relatively young and here's my chance. And rather than do like, you know, I'll, I'll do a year out, basically. That was the idea. Um, I'm my my mum's from India, my dad's from Iran, I was born in Iran. um, And I ended up um, going out to see my folks that were staying there for some time. I spent three months there, it was a great three months to go back to my I speak the language, I got to see my family, cousins, uncles, aunties, people that I never really got to grow up with, unfortunately. But this was my opportunity to, to, to explore that side of my life that I never knew I had. I was so focused on just the, the business and making money and doing property. I was having so much fun with it. I didn't really have time for much else. Um, so I, I really enjoyed that experience. Um, my brother had moved to Hong Kong three months before I, six months before I got there. Um, and I decided to go and see him. And then I had a ticket to go to Brazil. I was gonna go to the Amazon and have an adventure in the, in the jungle. And then I was gonna go to New York and California and then see what the state, you know, what's going on stateside. Um, and then probably come back to the UK property market and work out what my next move is. Anyway, the, the three months in Hong Kong became five years. I ended up staying out there um, and building businesses. So whilst we had the property portfolio here and I kept my ear to the ground and I'd, I'd, I'd keep things ticking over and making sure that it was all working uh, and looking for when, the, when to come back. And the market was going, you know, great guns. And I was like, oh, maybe this is the blip. Maybe this is dead cat bounds. I wasn't still quite sure. I was still doing a lot of research. I was studying a lot more. I mean, I studied economics and sociology at A-levels. Didn't get great results, but I thought I felt I understood it. But this was a, an opportunity for me to to study even more. And we're in the information age. So with the internet, with YouTube becoming a big thing around those years, I was just soaking up all the information I could to work out why I believed the days of boom and bust were, were over and why I shouldn't believe that and why boom and bust is actually a thing that happens cyclically and and how you can make money in a downturn. So I was studying all of this stuff whilst I was away, um, whilst I was also building other businesses for other people um, out in the Far East, having a having the experience that I think everybody else was having, you know, whilst I was in my early 20s um, and and learning a lot more about myself up until 2015 when i realized actually i was quite good at that um but if i but i was more passionate about property and if i was more passionate about property imagine how good i could be at that if i really you know dove back into it and then i looked at the portfolio we paid it off it had gone up in value we're sitting on a bunch of equity i thought let me come and refinance the portfolio and go again
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and what was it like living in Hong Kong? Because it's a um, it's a pretty intense place at the best of times.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, a, a long
2: way from Welland to uh, Central.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's it's intense. It's super intense. I felt like I'd fallen into the future. Actually, there was a there was a weird. Um, feeling of like i'm in a batman film or blade runner or something like that and this dystopian future or something and it was but then you go out to the to the new territories and you've got um like sheko and you've got you know beaches and the, and, and clearwater bay and a lot of beauty around there as well um, but i was mainly yeah between kind of sheng Wan and central and Wan chai and 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 very much um part of the central business district um, running nightclubs, bars, restaurants. And, and, and
2: these are a huge sort of cityscape things. Like you, you've got 20-story buildings where um, there's structural design engineers and every desk on every floor for 20 stories.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, and yeah.
2: It's one company
1: yeah 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 absolutely and and you know you're in it it was the first place that I actually went to where you're, you're like normally when people go to into a lift they press the button of where they're going and then they wait for the doors to close in Hong Kong everyone and I still have that habit today i'm I'm pressing closed door because you're in and out of lifts constantly and you don't want to wait you know you waste half your life waiting for the doors to close like it, it and th- and then the high street as well is not all on ground floor you've got literally a whole first floor of and you're on. There's an outdoor escalator there, so you can like you can see the ground and first floor of these. It's just a, it's a it's a funny place. Um, it's a lot of reclaimed land. There's a lot of history to. I mean, with the British rule that we did the handover in 1997. Um, I was there for the Umbrella Revolution as well, where there were huge protests in the streets. It was interesting to hear from the people that were more westernized and how they didn't want, you know, the mainland Chinese government to come in. And then there was more people that were more pro kind of Beijing uh, and Shanghai. It was just an amazing experience again um, and tapped me into a whole different world that I would have never, ever experienced if I didn't you know, leave my front door and, and go out. And I've now got like some amazing friends that I consider family, literally spent five five Christmases in a row there. I think I only came back once in five years into London. I was like, you know, from there you go on to Vietnam, you go to Thailand, you go to Bali, you got all these other places. It's just a wonderful place. Um, and, and, and it's one of my, you know, one of my second homes, I guess.
2: And it's an inspirational property place. They know how to build stuff there.
1: Yeah, so I actually, when I landed, I was going to be a real estate agent, and I got an offer from England Volkers, uh, Volkers which is the, the, the kind of a high-end brand, and I was very, very close to taking that job, but I just, I, I thought, you know what, I, I ended up getting in a, a, a general manager position in one of the top three nightclubs. And I thought, okay, you know, I'm here for an experience. If I get back into property again and, you know, sit in a goldfish bowl and watch the whole world go by, I'm not going to get what I'm really looking for. And I'm only here for three months anyway. So why, why would I do that? So, and I just wanted a little, literally pocket money. I just wanted a little bit of bar money so that I could go on to, you know, Amazon. I didn't want to, and it's all part of the experience really. But in the end, I was so good at that other job. That I ended up, you know, doing that for about two and a half years, and and you know, gave me the keys to the city. I, I got to meet some wonderful people that that you know, the movers and shakers of Hong Kong, and 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 party with them. And then celebrities would come through, and it was just a, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And it was still, but it was still along the lines of running a business, running a team, something that I was thrown in the deep end a little bit. I didn't really, really know exactly. I'd never done anything like that before at all. Um, but managed to make it work. Um, but it's a, it's a hard it's, it's definitely a young man's game or young person's sport because, you know, you're living by night. Um, you know, there's alcohol infused and all of that stuff. So it's 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 not an easy to it's not you. it's not sustainable long term. So by the time I hit 30, I knew that, OK. I need to do. So. And, and growing up, I always imagined that I was going to be in property. So I found myself on the other side of the world. My parents were getting a little bit older. They were retired. And and I and I was thinking I was getting a bit restless. I was thinking, I think I need to go back to back home to my parents, to my family um, and back to my career, which I didn't really want to let go. And the property market had bounced back. And and I started and I studied more about how you make money in a downturn. And not only how you make money in downturn, but you actually can make more money in a downturn than you would in a boom, um, which like blew my mind. So I was like, right, let me go and put all this to the test. UK is one of the best places to do business. Um, It's got the rule of law, which is, you know, one of the many reasons why Hong Kong is such a successful place is because they've got a lot of that infrastructure from the British um I speak the language so the difference in Hong Kong is a very small community but if you don't speak Cantonese that you can potentially do business with whereas here in the UK potentially I can do business with I don't know what's the population 60 70 million people so um so yeah decided to come back and and dig my foundations in here and since 2015 over the last eight years or so that's so, exactly
2: so you, you went for three months and you ended up staying how long five years five years okay okay very good so so what was the plan coming back
1: so the plan coming back was um very very straightforward um in that the portfolio that had gone up in value nobody was doing anything with it um there's no plans or anything and I, i i could just see that this is a great opportunity to um refinance interest rates were still super low and and build a a, a larger income producing portfolio um so i came back and it was literally 18 months that i did research i I started to learn about all of the higher yielding income producing um strategies that were available um to to anybody and this was anything from um hmos to service accommodation There was things like rent to rent as well and you can do income producing but i i i wanted to be asset an asset owner um and oh you could do flips I could have kind of released that and I could have gone into large scale development so I could have tried to do the same flips that I was doing which were these small you know side extension rear extension loft conversions housing the flats but researching absolutely everything I literally reviewed 550 different deals before buying my first like five HMOs that I ended up buying Um, And that was about another 18 months after the first 18 months. Because the first 18 months is like, right, where is the UK property market? What's going on here now? I needed to get back into the swing of things. Uh, HMO was a a coin that was now commonplace, um, where it was kind of everybody was calling them bedsits before. Um, Property networking was a big thing. So I started watching a lot of YouTube videos. Um, I came across Susanna Cole. She was all over YouTube at the time. So I watched all her videos to catch up on stuff. Um, and then I would read loads of books. I read a one of like how to retire on one H, uh, one property deal, which was uh, this guy, I think it was Barry Davies or something. He talks about big 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 HMOs. Um, and then I read another book, which was I was just reading loads and just soaking up all the information. Uh, I read a, another book, which was uh, Property Magic by Simon Zucci, mm-hmm. and that book was was quite um a bit of a uh like an alice in wonderland book because um throughout the book it would tell me about there's a networking event that we do locally if you go to this website you'll find one local to you and and you get a free ticket and it would mention it a few times across the book so at the end of it i was like right let me go. And normally like lots of books give you free resources and I usually never read them or anything. I'm never going to log in, but this was sounded interesting and I started to feel a little bit claustrophobic. Um, I actually went back to one of my old state agency jobs, got a job with, um, my old manager, um, because I just wanted to be in and around in and amongst it, you know, get really, really deeply ingrained in it all again. Um, but I felt a little bit, um, I needed to widen my horizons. Anyway, so I went online, found one that was Canary Wharf. That was the nearest one to me. I was in East London in Wanstead. And I visited the event. I felt so out of place. I just didn't know what to expect. But I ended up meeting so many cool people that were all as passionate about property as I was. Um, and I, But I was worried, like, is this a cult? Is this a scam? What is this thing? Uh, and, and then the people that I would speak to, they would tell me about other property networking events and other, you know, independent ones. And there was a PPN and there was this, and there was ones all across London, all across the country. And I was like, wow, this never existed when when I was doing property, not anywhere near in the same... Uh, at least, I mean, I never went to any. It might have existed, but not in the same way. Not that it was connected over social media, which wasn't really a thing as well when I was uh, when I was working as a state agent. Anyway, so that suddenly blew up in terms of I was super busy networking, going out to every single networking event that I could probably get, to, possibly get to, meeting people with no real, um, no real plan, no real vision, other than I've got this pool of capital, I need to invest it, I need to get a return on it. Um, And that's it. And I started building my own calculator and Excel um, and then working out where everyone was investing. And I'd travel the length and breadth of the country. I'd go to Manchester. The people from Manchester were investing in Sheffield. The people from Sheffield were investing in the people from Lincoln were investing in Norwich. And it was like, like, why isn't anyone investing in their own backyard? Why are people going far away from? I was just trying to work this all out. Um, In the end, after that first 18 months, my conclusions um, led me to HMOs is going to be the strategy. Um, that's something that I was comfortable with. I already had a bunch of single lets uh, that I, I was a property estate agent, lettings property management comfortable with all of that. So this is just like a little bit more intense than, than what I'm already doing. Um, so totally easy to get my head, head around and I could start to see the returns on paper. Then it was a question of, right looking at article four directions because the first thing i thought was durham Durham's where i grew up durham city durham university i'm gonna go to go there and buy a bunch of hmos and and happy days and it's gonna be great because i get to go and see my friends when i do the site visits and it'll be great uh but then there was article four directions so that didn't work and then i started to go around the houses i literally went up to blackpool manchester i was you know, talk about sheffield and lincoln and 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 all like across down to i went to newport south wales um absolutely everywhere looking for the, the right deals. I ended up finding Coventry, there was no Article 4 Direction. Um Kent, Medway, there's no Article 4 Direction. Both university towns. One of them is just a stone throw from London. The other one's just outside Birmingham. And 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 the numbers that I found, what I could buy it for, what I could do it up for, and then what I could refinance out. With evidence on a bricks and mortar valuation because I didn't trust the commercial stuff. That was like, like I thought, well, commercial valuation, if you go far enough in the north, you might be able to get it. But on anyway, I just didn't want to do it that way. I just wanted to do it on bricks and mortar to stay safe. Um, and I found it and it finally worked, but I had to look at 550 deals. I literally recorded every single time I saw a property, I'd put it into the calculator and I'd create a new tab for it. And I got up to about 550 before I started finding a little. Um, a little run of deals that would work in these pockets um and then i found one uh a two a three story building in the northeast um and that was all great that was that was loads of fun that all those deals have worked out uh worked out really well i've got my, my manager that i worked with 10 years ago uh, 15 years ago now uh he i told him what i was gonna do and he was like yeah let's do it together." So I'm very excited that I get to still work with him on those investments. And we work really well together. And um, and then it was like, okay, now that I've got that, now I want to actually become a bigger developer. Like I've done the refurbs and the refurbs as well, the flips. The reason why I didn't do any flips, because they, they used to actually make really good money. You had to put a lot more money into them. You couldn't get like 90% loan to value mortgages anymore, uh, self-certified um and the and the, you know you have to get bridging and you have to put chunky mounts down and then the margins were super thin so back when i was doing it um you know homes under the hammer wasn't anywhere near as popular as it became um and it certainly was at its earlier stages now we're like on the millionth episode of Homes under the hammer everybody's going to the auctions trying to buy these properties so just to do a straightforward little refurb little flip just didn't have the same margin on it and there's a lot of work that goes into it, a lot of risk it was pretty easy stuff bread and butter but it was just just too tight uh, so you uh, started
2: looking over the fence at the developers and thinking well uh, i'd like a bit of that
1: exactly i thought that the sme um developer as you start to grow a little bit in the scale and stature i thought that there was going to be less competition relatively or at least the competition that was there um i could i could compete with them you know the margins were worthwhile basically the quantums of profit was worthwhile um it was worthwhile competing at that level whereas doing it for smaller margin yes there might be lower risk but it's still a lot of running around and, and i you know maybe if i was 10 years younger i would i'd be still looking at that but i just wanted to do bigger stuff anyway upon upon that the 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 research that i was doing and still attending property networking events etc i actually came across a gentleman by the name of paul oberschneider a uh, really really great guy and um and he himself incredibly successful realtor um built the largest integrated real estate firm in central and eastern europe um and became a huge developer so i wanted to do developments with him and he he's the one that mentioned to me about doing uh, lending why don't we do, he wanted, he wanted to get into the lending business. So I was like, well, okay, that sounds interesting to me. Let's, let's see how that goes. So fast forward a few years later, we built um, Hilltop Credit Partners, which is a development finance provider, um, built the fund to, a, you know, a good size of a few hundred million. And, uh, and 12 months prior to me stepping down, I, you know, originated over a hundred million Of loans, and this was from you know five detached houses, five homes, with a small SME developer, um, through to um, larger, larger scale developers doing hundreds of units in uh, in the southeast and the Midlands, um, and and you know twenty million pound loans.
2: And and these are these big numbers. Um, So originating hundred million in in property development loans um, uh, from a, a. a zero start that's you know that's very impressive well done
1: yeah I can't say it was all all me it was certainly there was there was myself Paul Jacob Tiger um just just kicked it off um but we 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 absolutely I mean I I I absolutely loved it I really really did I and it was such a great experience um and I I still have a good relationship with those guys They're, they're 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 phenomenal people and we still have a good, strong relationship, but, um, and they're still, they're still on that ride. They're still on that journey. I decided to step off that, uh, that roller coaster, Um, so I could set up Mary Oaks property finance. Um, I'd had a kid I'd had, um, so I had, like a health issue that I had to deal with. And, uh, and I decided, and I was still wanted to do my projects on the weekend as well. And the way that I manage my time was through the week. I'd be working with the lending business weekends. I'd be running, um, running to 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 you know kent or coventry or the northeast and i'd be working on these projects um and and this was before i had a girlfriend before i had a wife before i had a kid and i could afford to do that um but when when i had the wife and i had the kid uh and then i still wanted to do my projects on the weekends and something i had to give basically the kid was definitely going to be the mo- main priority for the weekends Um, so that means I had to give up doing my projects or give up something. And it just happened to be Hilltop was the the one that I gave up, but, um, but I didn't want to leave the business entirely because I'm doing funding I really enjoyed. it. I thought I was good at that. I really do get it. And, and I thought I could be really helpful to more people. And I guess that's for me, you know, a, a business solves a problem, a good business solves a problem and you, and you're helpful towards people, whether you're providing a product or a service and i found being a lender and generating over 750 inquiries in the in the kind of 18 months prior to me stepping stepping down we we found that the quality of the inquiries was so poor you know these were brokers that didn't really understand property they certainly were never estate agents or lenders or um builders or or anything connected anything connected they were they were they were either i mean like the more sophisticated ones were um investment bankers so they understood finance and the capital stack but they weren't really property people um so i i thought there's there's an opportunity here for somebody that really is passionate somebody that really does care um to bring the institutional capital um to sme property investors and developers um, in a much more um, comprehensive, efficient, and, and, and
2: applying your your sector expertise and experience across a you know a you know uh, almost two decade period at that that point.
1: Exactly, exactly, absolutely right. And I'd I'd like to think that across, from the people that we've already been working with and the reviews that we're getting on 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 kind of Google and stuff, that people are enjoying working with us and they can see the extra mile that we go, the extra input that we give. Um, Almost to our detriment. Sometimes I find I'm talking way too much and giving way too much insight than your average broker would, um, and they're just like focused on it, getting an application so, in. Could we
2: could we talk about a, um, a simple example of a deal? Um, have you got one one handy that you can you can run through?
1: Yeah. So we've got. Um, I mean, we've we've obviously done quite a few deals now, and um, through from bridging to. Uh, development finance exit finance um commercial term loans buy to let so we do a whole range of very investor developer focused stuff we don't really do residential mortgage have you mortgage. got
2: a sexy one we can talk through
1: yes so i'm i'm well i'm i think the one that the one that sticks out a little bit in terms of one that we've done recently um is it was problematic and i think sometimes it's also also good to talk about ones that have had a little where, where you earned your money yeah, literally, honestly. And and you know what? I'm very, very fortunate. I work with an absolutely brilliant developer on it. Um, the guy is so motivated. He's also kind of comes from growing up, wanting to do this and envisioning it in his mind. And no matter what hurdles thrown at him, he just plows through. And he just, you know, we work very tight together. We spoke almost every single day. Um, and, and we both love the journey. And he had to go through this. And like, you know, this was like... If you are going to be a developer this is literally testing you to see whether you're going to come through the other end or you're just going to down tools and walk off and 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 try something else to make money but he made it through and the the deal is, is is a nice tidy deal in that it's seven units in northeast of london um it was uh at an auction and um but we'd seen it one year prior and he'd been offering on it so it was it was on the market for like just over a million and he'd and he'd seen it on the market he was actually going to buy it for more money than he ended up getting it for post-auction um because he just kept on monitoring it they said no to his offer and they thought ah, oh, let's sell it um i don't know i don't know what went through these guys i have never met these sellers but they thought they put it in an auction and we ended up it didn't sell in the auction, and they agreed a price post-auction lower than what we were willing to pay for it, which turned out to be a right result. So from that point of view, great. Ranged the bridge, and uh, I managed to close the deal in, in the 28-day, uh, day, um, four-week period. Then the development finance needed to come by, um, and this is where things get really, really tricky. And I think to a certain extent, even though you know I understand the credit process really well, you just can't account for certain things that are going to happen along the way. Um, but it's not how, it's not what happens to you. It's how you react to it that hopefully, um, is, is the learning from this one because we ended up going to, I mean, the developers are working on another site as well. He's building a couple of homes, uh, another area of kind of, uh, Northeast London. Um, he himself, 20 years experience as a, um, building surveyor, quantity surveyor. So he understand he's been in and around, uh, construction and development, but his own projects, limited experience. But because he's been building other people's, he just knows the whole blueprint inside out. Um and now it's just to do it on his own, on his own name. So he planned everything out in his mind, his whole program and everything. He's super slick with all of that. Um, I just needed to get in the development finance as quickly as possible. And there's and because he's stretching his equity across multiple projects, we wanted to get the highest leverage that we possibly could. Um, and so typically, the lending that business that I work for as well, you can go up to ninety percent LTC, loan to cost, seventy five percent LTGDV loan to GDV. And you can do all of the the funding in one unit range, one set of underwriters, one set of um legals, one set of valuation reports, et cetera. And you don't need to to worry about intercreditor agreements and all that sort of stuff. And that was the theory uh, that as a lender, I, I you know we we used to implement and it worked well. Um, but it doesn't always work super smoothly. So we went down that route and I ended up, I actually had a senior and senior mayor's idea at the beginning, but then we got some really good terms from a stretch senior lender and everything was going quite well up until the Trussonomics saga. Uh, Then things took a little bit of a turn. The lender started to ask more questions and literally we we were due to complete um in about four weeks time so so it was, it was the timing wasn't great and we'd been told that valuation reports are good qs reports good underwriting is complete so it's just legals and the legals are the legals because like should be straightforward we've already bought it from an auction so we already know that it's got a clean title everything's good don't worry about anything it's just due process more so than anything anyway four weeks passed, and we're supposed to complete and they start throwing us more underwriting questions and then they start asking for more security and they start saying you know throwing like and and oh, just made it so difficult because everybody was nervous and this was bef- i think before rishi would come in and kind of turn the corner for us nobody knew if it was going to get worse before it gets better um even it just was really really painful anyway they started asking for so much more it just became untenable. We just thought this is not going to happen, and we're on a bridging loan, so we're racking up interest. Um, and 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 obviously, look, this developer he, he kind of took it on the chin uh, as best you can when you're in that situation, but it was obviously uncomfortable. But he was such a sh- such a trooper about it, such a professional about it. It was it was great to work with him. So in the end, anyway, I had to scramble and make sure that I don't leave this guy in the lurch. And, and pull together and find an alternative. We managed to find an alternative that was a senior, that was a meslender lender, that gave us the stretch that we needed because we now needed more stretch because we're now incurring more interest on the bridging loan. Um, and we managed to get it done with a very, very, um, well, not, not a very well-known meslender lender that was willing to go that little bit further uh, but these these two lenders had never worked together, so there was another risk that they, the intercreditor might not they might fall apart. So that at, at all times, it was a bit like you know you can only speak to people so much, and they can only give you so many assur- assurances until they actually do the work on it and and see if they can make things work. You you are kind of running a risk on certain cases unless you've worked with the senior and that have always worked with each other in the past. But when we went down that route, they weren't willing to give us the stretch that we wanted. So literally on Tendock, super nervous, and I'm literally like it's like almost like you're working with a boxer and you're in the ring with him. You know, you're, you're standing from the sideline with the towel, but you are in the ring with him. You're feeling every single blow. Um, and I, and, and especially cause I've been in these situations before as well. And I know that how, you know, how I'm in it right now, where I've got to finish these two flats, make them from two, two bedrooms into two, four bedrooms before the article four comes around. So I'm literally it's a race against time um, and you've got to get everything done. So when things aren't going your way, you know, you do lose sleep at night. And so I was going through this with him. um, And again, we were still in this phase of uncertainty. Uh, We were going into the new year. We wanted to complete everything before the new year. It just seemed impossible, especially, I mean, around Christmas. Everybody wants their deal to be done. And usually it's the ones that have already started way before we started that will be prioritized. Um, In the end, we managed to get it all done a few months later um, in early February. But it was, and the two weeks over Christmas obviously was painful, racking up all this interest. But I mean, the quick numbers on it: it's going to be a two point five million pound GDV. Um, it developers put about three hundred thousand of their own equity into it. Um, the The total development costs were one one million pounds. Um, the purchase price was seven fifty. So it's got a pretty good margin on it um and and yeah the, the the loan amounts that we got were 1.6 million from the senior lender and 250,000 pounds from the Mes lender um so it's it's it it became you know it got tighter but it it's going to be a great deal um and it's going to create again which is one of the reasons why I get so excited about what I do more affordable housing more quality affordable luxury to the to the first time buyer investor market to create more homes for rental or for for to, for homeowners and it's right next to a station in northeast london um it's a site that you know been knocking about the market for some time that you know these sites there's a lot of these sites with planning approval but they're just being held back for one reason or another um but it's so so it feels it, so there's good. a
2: really interesting thing going on with that. so that that's a that's a great uh, great story thank you um i don't know if you're aware but uh, they've just fought a new law um, or, or tax into ireland that doesn't kick off for Another 12 or 18 months, but they've announced that uh, on any site that has residential planning permission um, that isn't being developed, that there isn't uh, construction underway, there's a 3% of value tax annually. I think it's not
1: um, a bad shout. How to police it? Whether it's you know, and they've got a
2: you know similar thing going on uh, in Ireland as in the UK, where you've got a uh, a huge bank of planning approvals given, but it's just been not not action, not not uh, actually being done. Which uh, you know, you, you talk about fixing the housing crisis, getting more housing. Uh, out there you've actually got to build stuff
1: 100 the, the the affordable housing crisis i mean we we're supposed to build i don't know how many 300 new homes every year since 2000 and we've not been getting anywhere near that and the population is still growing so we need to have i mean the permit development uh changes recently have helped to a certain extent deregulation effectively but I think certain kinds of more regulation where whereby developers are going to get penalized for not bringing sites forward and starting to build out I think will absolutely cause uh create a little boom in construction create more employment <coughs> create more affordable homes and fix the the, the the problem how they police that because right now if you just get on site and you implement the planning by by you know doing the dig out, that's construction on site. So do they now need to see the second stage of that as well to, to mm-hmm, get the 3% mm-hmm. or can they can, can you sit on that saying I started it but you know, for the next 10 years I've just paid my 3% mm-hmm. uh, or or I don't need to pay my 3% because it's already implemented so I don't know how they're going to police it or that policy behind that. Um, that's not my job to, to think it through but they definitely need to bring more sites. And obviously I benefit from that as well because I'm putting out the development finance, but I think genuinely, you know, I was a, a student in, in, in the UK, in London, uh, 20 years ago. And now the student accommodation that I put forward compared to the kind of places that I was like living in, phenomenal, absolutely like night and day how good it is because of people like SME developers um, and, and landlords and, and, you know, investors, putting into the system yes there is a return that's the motivation that's the incentive but i think you know any capitalist economy works in that way and i you know, one of the things that does is a bit of a bugbear how how much landlords get um a bit of a bad rap i do understand it at the same time i totally understand it these are people profiting from a human need um and the, in in back especially when i started there was a lot of slum lords. The pe- there was no regulation. There was people creating really crappy accommodation. You know, rental accommodation was so so poor, um, and I get it, and and I I do understand why. Um, and you
2: you go you go round uh, into the out of fringes most of the way around London, and there's swathes of poor quality rental accommodation, tens <laughs> of thousands of properties that you know. that that shouldn't be shouldn't be
1: yeah and you know and 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 i understand as well the reason why people don't like landlords is because they've made a lot of money landlords generally have you know if you've just sat on a property some of the properties that we bought you know went up five six times and that i i do get that you know it's easy money and you're profiting off other people i do get all of that i totally understand landlords have had overall an easy ride uh for the most part over the last 25 years um and it's been a really really great asset class but at the same time, penalising them too much doesn't make sense to me as well. There's got to be this happy medium. I'm pleased I'm not the one that has to solve all of that sort of thing. All I want to do is continue to bring more affordable housing, more quality stock to the market for the masses, increasing the supply because um, the standards are pretty good. You know, we've got minimum space standards now. We've got um, we've got HMO regulations and stuff. So I'm I'm pretty happy with all of that being implemented we've got epcs being a minimum of c from 2025 all of that's good stuff in the right direction um i mean the planning department themselves on getting things through planning in the first place that's a whole different topic of conversation but certainly the ones that have been approved they should be built out but again i get the other side of it as well the other side of the argument will is that some of these schemes that get approval are not necessarily making the best use of that land. I know so many developers that buy schemes with planning approval, that they know they can see that they can enhance it to make a much better scheme. Um, and 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 from that point of view, if, if they were forced to build it out, we might not have that better accommodation because... So it's such a difficult, um, difficult problem to navigate. Um, I don't know what the answers are, I'll be honest, but I just really, really... Absolutely. In the same way that I did my first deal in two thousand one, two thousand two, um, every time we fund a deal, um, I get a huge kick out of it. And it's not just the one point eight million pound deal we did here. Um, if it's a fifty thousand pound bridge in Blackpool, I uh, I get equally excited about that as well. And and you know we've got clients all across the country doing doing all kinds of stuff.
2: Okay, so uh, absolute pleasure having you on, Sam. Uh, so Sam Lowney, Merry Oaks Property Finance. Check him out on LinkedIn. Uh, thanks for coming on. There's a, a list of other things uh, I'm going to have to get you back on for, uh, for another episode or two. Um, I, I'd like to go into a bit more depth on that, uh, that refinance deal, uh, if you don't mind. So, so check him out on LinkedIn. I'm Will Mallard. This is My Property World podcast. Thank you.
1: Thanks for having me.